tonight. Uh, why don't you open up back to the book of Acts. Now we're looking at Acts chapter 5, Acts cha- or excuse me, Acts chapter 8, um, verses 1 through 24. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 24. Um, we'll read that here as we go, but first we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will get into it. Father God, thank you so much for this night. That's so good to be able to just praise your name, um, just, just to sing truths about you, Father, of how you've changed our lives. And, and Lord, we know the, the great change agent, Father, is, is both your word and the spirit that, um, that applies your word to our lives. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us understanding tonight, um, more than understanding that you would give us application for our lives and give us the strength to follow through. Um, Whatever it is, God, we need here tonight, um, whether encouragement or conviction or or a challenge, whatever that looks like, God, you know us, you know our hearts, you know our lives, you know our needs. Lord, speak to us as individuals because you love us as individuals. Um, Tonight, be glorified. Let the words that come forth be yours and not mine. Lord, get me out of the way and you speak to your people. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You know, when it comes to the Christian life, would you agree that it's a good thing that as Christians we live confidently? Would you agree with that? I mean, don't you think that God wants us to live with confidence? I believe so. Yet I wonder, as Christians, how much confidence we would actually have if we had to walk through a situation like we saw Stephen walk through last week, all the way to the point where his life was taken. You know, as Christians, um, we love to sing songs, right? We love to sing songs with lyrics like, you know, if, if God is for us, who can stand against us? We like singing stuff like that. I do, right? Or, or, or how about, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind the God of angel armies is always on my side. I mean, I like that song because it gives me confidence. It gives me encouragement. And, and then like some of our favorite scripture verses, like some of these are like at Hobby Lobby on signs, right? I mean, they're encouraging. Like Isaiah 41.10, don't be afraid for I am with you. Don't be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. I mean, we like that. Jeremiah 29.11, we know this one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. We, we love that verse. I love that verse, right? Or, or 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and he will guard you from the evil one. Wouldn't you agree that those verses like that just give us encouragement? That there, there's something about them that just on the inside, just like, man, we can, we can take the hill, we, we can do this. And, and I'll be honest with you, we should look at verses like that. They should encourage us. They should give us confidence. However, we also need to keep those verses in balance with the reality that we serve a sovereign God that at times... At times, it's in his will and for his purpose that he allows his people to go through trials and dark times and difficulties, even many times to the point of death. And it's those times where we have to trust not only that, that, that God is a God that protects, but that God is a God who is sovereign and works all things for good for his people. See, it's in those difficult times of the Christian faith that many Christians' faith are really shaking, wondering, like, where did the God go that is the God of Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Especially when it, it seems so crazy, like sometimes I've even asked God, right? Like, why'd you take that person? Like, they were so passionate for you and, and doing so much for your kingdom, and yet, man, they, they got cancer and died seemingly way, way too young. You ever know anybody like that? They're just like, why? It just doesn't make... And he says, I mean, you think about Stephen, like we talked about last week. I mean, uh, a man spreading the message of Christ, doing the work of God. 
I mean, fearlessly stood against those who sought to silence him. I mean, a man who was just absolutely devoted to the Lord, even with the threat of death. He, he just never, ever backed down for a second. Like, why would God take him? Why would God allow those religious leaders to murder that person, the one who was so passionately and fearlessly serving, doing so much good for his kingdom? It's in those times we have to trust in the sovereignty of God. It's examples like this that should give us even more confidence in God. In that, what we're going to see today is that what God accomplished through Stephen's death was far more than what would have been accomplished had Stephen lived. And we're going to see that all kind of work out here today as we get into Acts chapter 8. Now, the last thing we saw in Acts chapter 7, again, Stephen was, was taken. He was um, brought to trial and stoned to death um, by a mob of people. And the one that seemed to be kind of heading that all up was this young man named Saul. We know Saul of Tarsus. Now, that's kind of where we're going to pick up here in chapter 8. So let's start, let's start off by reading verses 1 through 3 of Acts chapter 8. So Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And verse 2 is kind of interesting. It says that some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. Now, we don't know who those men were. I don't give them by name. But the fact that there were devout men would seem that there were men of some religious stature. And so whether these were men within the, the temple, whether they're a priest or part of the Sanhedrin, whatever, that actually maybe believed in the Lord and kind of saw what was happening there and didn't agree with that, we don't know exactly. But it was definitely not common for somebody that was stoned to death because of what was considered blasphemy. Like, you don't take them and give them a proper burial. But Stephen did by these devout men. We don't know who it is, but it's just kind of interesting. But anyways, in verse 3, it says, But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. Now, if you remember, by this time, um, some theologians estimate that this church in Jerusalem was somewhere like in the 20,000-plus range of people. I mean, we are talking about a mega, mega church that was happening there in Jerusalem, um, filled with the vast majority of it with Jews, Jews from right there in Jerusalem, many from the surrounding areas of Judea, even many that were outside of that, that had come in um, through the Pentecost celebration, where were saved, and had kind of stuck around there, right? Um, and so what, what is kind of taking place is this man named Saul, that we know of Saul of Tarsus, that ends up being transformed by God. We're going to see that in a couple chapters ahead of here, but becomes who we know as the Apostle Paul. He begins to chase this church down and to persecute this church. Um, what did that persecution look like? Well, the Apostle Paul actually tells us later on in Acts exactly what he was doing. And in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, I just want to read you what the Apostle Paul's testimony about the time here that he was chasing this church out of Jerusalem. He said this, he said, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to even curse Jesus. 
I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. So this was the Saul that we're talking about here in Acts chapter 8. This is what he was doing. Chasing these people down, causing them to deny Christ, doing anything he could to destroy the church and destroy the name of Christ. And as we think about that, a question we should ask is why were Saul and the religious leaders like so like vehemently opposed to these Christians? Especially when this first church in Jerusalem was, I mean, 99% of them probably were Jews. Had the same bloodline, the same forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What was the big deal? The big deal was the name of Jesus. That was the big deal. See, these Christians no longer believe that their salvation came through the traditions and customs of the Jewish law. Like they no longer believe that they needed to practice the, the sacrificial system of the temple because these Christians believed that salvation came through the death and resurrection of Christ. They, they looked at Christ as we do today as the fulfillment of the law. And this was something that did not set well very, at all within the, the temple. We think about what Peter said in Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And to the, to the Jew that wasn't saved, that was the height of heresy. And it was something that they saw as a penalty of death. They were, they were, they were blaspheming against the very name of God himself, and it drove these people absolutely mad. Now, on that note, have you ever wondered, maybe you've never noticed this, even in our day, like, it's okay for people to mention the name of God or some other religious figure, but have you ever noticed that if somebody mentions the name of Jesus, it's almost people are just like, it's like almost like a hiss. You ever notice that? I mean, like people in the media talk about God all the time. Even the most vile politicians talk about God and invoke his name. God's talked about in movies, but you notice that you rarely ever hear the name of Jesus. It's by no accident. You see, when people use the name of God, I mean, to anybody else, it's, it's not really a big deal because there's gods by lots of different names. It's used in a very, very generic sense, but when somebody brings up the name Jesus, there's a very specific statement that's being made by that. That through him and through him alone is salvation possible. Through him and through him alone do we reach heaven. And see, that is something that does not set well in society, and that certainly didn't set well in Jewish society back here in the first century as well. I mean, when you think about these Jewish Christians, they still believed in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. They still believed the law of God was good. They still worshiped the same God of Israel, Yahweh, right? But because they claimed the name Jesus, because they claimed that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, and their Savior, this stirred up a hornet's nest in Jerusalem. And it wasn't even just with the Jews. What we know about very early Christian history is this even cost many of, the, many of them their lives, even when it came to the Gentiles, like the Romans. Because to Caesar, who thought of himself as Lord, the fact that the Christians would not deny Christ as Lord, I mean, he, they, they murdered just scads of them because of that. The, the name of Jesus is very, very threatening when it comes to the people of this world. Why is that? It, it all has the two with a passage in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 that says simply this, 
We used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Do you know that when a person comes up against Jesus, when, when the name of Jesus is spoken and they're just instantly like, <sighs> why? It's because of Satan. That name, Jesus, is the greatest threat to Satan's kingdom that there is. Matthew 24 and verse 14, and, and the good news will be preached to all the nations, right, so that all will hear and what then the end will come. Every time a person is reached through proclaiming the name of Jesus, death and resurrection, that we know as the gospel, every person that is reached is one step closer to Satan's final demise. And he is doing everything and anything he can to inhibit the name of Jesus from going forth. But you know what I love about my God? He is always thousands of steps ahead of whatever Satan is trying to do. You know, it's been well said that Satan is like the most frustrated being in all of history because every time he makes a move, God is way ahead of him and uses everything Satan means for bad and evil to accomplish God's purpose. For instance, I want to remind you of, of a verse that we know about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, a very famous verse, right? That you're going to receive power, the Spirit comes upon you, right? And you're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But as we see here, in, in even at this point in Acts chapter 8, where had the gospel gone? It was only in Jerusalem. Even the disciples hadn't left. Even with the persecution here, the disciples still hadn't left. And so God used what something that, that seemed to be bad, he used to spread out his church. Do you think it was an accident that Stephen's life was taken? Knowing that it took the Christians and went with them? Oh, it wasn't an accident at all. It, it was in God's sovereign plan that this all took place so that what he proclaimed in Acts 1-8 would take place. Now let's jump to verse 4. We're going to see, kind of see how this is all accomplished. Verse 4 says, But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Now, what's interesting about that word scattered in the Greek language when this was written, it, it's this. Scattered doesn't mean like, shoo, get out of here. It literally is like a farmer taking a handful of seeds and going, and so what we see with human eyes is, well, this guy named Saul and these, these religious leaders, they were persecuted and were driving out of, them out of town. Oh, no, nope. We're looking at that with wrong eyes. Here's what, here's what really took place. God gathered his church in his hand and went and spread them out so they could plant seeds of the gospel. Where? Well, it, it, we see that. Where did they, they go? We see later on that they went to Judea in verse 2, or verse 1, and Samaria. And eventually in the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see that they get into the Gentile nations and the gospel begins to spread to the furthest most parts of the world, just like the Lord said. It really is amazing. You know, it's important for us to trust in the sovereignty of God, especially when it comes to times of difficulty in our lives, even in the lives of people we love. Like, we need to live with confidence that God will sustain us, yes, but only until his purpose is done with our lives. See, trusting in the sovereignty of God isn't just that, hey, he's going to protect us, he's going to provide for us, we're never going to have any problems. No, not at all. He's going to do all those things until our time here is finished. 
And if his will, his purposes, for him to accomplish his plan means trials in our life, means even if we have to go to the point of death in our life, we need to trust in God's sovereignty that he knows what he's doing. He's the God that has declared the end from the beginning, and we need to trust in that aspect of the Lord. Something else I love about verse 4 is that in the midst of this persecution that these people faced, it didn't stop them from proclaiming the message. Like, they didn't go hide and, and put a blanket over their head and, and keep quiet, what'd they do? Oh yeah, they, they got shooed out of the city, but what they, the whole way they're telling people about the Lord. They didn't keep quiet. And it's what, a, what an incredible lesson for us. I mean, we, we think our world's crazy now. Just wait. Can I tell you something? It's only getting worse. It's only going to get harder. We need to make the choice now that no matter what we face, no matter what opposition comes our way, we're going to stand on the truth. And even if it means our livelihoods, even if it means our very lives, let's never back down from proclaiming our risen Savior. That's our job no matter what. So these Christians we read about here in verse 4, they're they're scattered all over the place. The message of Christ begins to spread. And and now we're going to see kind of the effects of that later on in Acts. But in our remaining verses for today, we're going to be seeing um, how um, this kind of took place in one specific man named Philip. So the church is spread out, but now it kind of narrows down to this one man named Philip that ends up in this town of Samaria. So who is Philip? Well, Philip was one of the, really, as we call it, the first deacons. As we see kind of in Acts chapter 6. Just like Stephen was one of those men chosen in Acts chapter 6, Philip likewise was one of those men. And when he was driven out, he he ended up in this city named Samaria. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 5 and read through verse 8. So Philip, it says, for example went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed, and so there was great joy in the city. So Philip ends up in this city named Samaria. What's interesting about Samaria is this is not the first time they had an encounter with Jesus. You remember the Samaritan woman? Jesus was at the same town where he met that woman out the well, and she went into the town and said, look, come see this man that told me everything about my life, right? It's everything I ever did. And they come out, and many of those people um, recognize Jesus for who he is, but not everybody did, clearly. Many of those people, because it was a very, very, very large city, many of those people ignored it. However, even though they may have forgotten about Jesus, God hadn't forgotten about the town of Samaria, and through Philip, he gave these people a second chance. And as I was thinking about that, I'm thinking, you know, how many people out there have had seeds planted in their lives over the years? People that have spoken things to them, have shared Jesus, have spoken the Bible into their lives, and yet they had never accepted, they never took it seriously. I just wonder, could we be the ones that that seed takes root in when we go share the Jesus with them. You know what I mean? They say it takes at least seven times for somebody to hear the gospel before it, generally speaking, takes root and people actually accept it. You never know. Listen, maybe we're going to be that seventh time. We should make sure we, we, we speak the truth into people's lives. So as Philip goes throughout this city, what does he do? He shares the gospel. Sharing the message of Christ's death and resurrection, he told people that Jesus was the long way to the Savior, Messiah and Savior. He told them that they could be saved and forgiven of their sins by placing their faith in him and rejecting their sins, right? And what did God do? He backed up Philip's words. 
And, and through Philip, the Spirit gave him the power to do signs and, and, and wonders. The, the Holy Spirit moved in him. Lame people, paralyzed people were healed, stood up and walked. I mean, like in crazy ways, demons are cast out of people. So demons were, were going out of the screaming. I mean, what a sight that had to have been. You think maybe that would have gotten the people of Samaria's attention seeing those things? Oh, I think so. And in fact, we know so because of verse 6 that the people listened intently to Philip's message. And we move on to verses 9 through 11. It says this, A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, um, the very power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. That's a pretty crazy couple of verses, isn't it? Like, maybe your first thought is, well, I thought like sorcery and stuff was things that were just like in Disney cartoons and, um, you know, myth- mythology. <laughs> Can I tell you something that's real? It's, it's very real. This, this Simon is described here as a sorcerer. He astounded people with magic. And can I tell you something? It wasn't like carnival tricks. It wasn't like some cheap card trick. He, he was empowered by demonic forces that were giving him the power to do literal signs and wonders. In fact, we kind of see this later on in Acts chapter nine, or 16, excuse me, when, when, when Paul and I think Silas go into Philippi, I believe it was, and there's this girl there that's, it says that, that's, um, that was possessed by evil spirits that literally could tell people's future. And so this guy that owned her would use her, I mean, and she was literally telling people their future, and this guy was making scads and scads of money until... Paul came and, and cast out the demon. And so the, the point is this. We need to be mindful as Christians that, that sorcery, witchcraft, magic, magic it, it's not just movie hype. It's, it's not just fake stuff. These things are absolutely real. There are real demonic forces all around us that we have to be aware of. And as Christians, we should never, ever mess with those things. We should never let these things in our home. We should not allow our kids to play around them. Why? Because they are evil. And Scripture speaks to these things. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12 tells us this. This was what God spoke to the Israelites going into Israel. But he says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering, and do not let your people practice fortune-telling, or use sorcery, or interpret omens, or engage in witchcraft, or cast spells, or function as mediums, or psychics, or call forth the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. In Leviticus 19.31, do not defile yourselves by turning to mediums, or those who consult the spirits of the dead. I am the Lord your God. The point is, this stuff is real. Like, you can really call people back from the dead. Go back and read in 1 Samuel when, when, when Saul went and, went and paid the, the witch of Endor to call back the spirit of Samuel. I mean, this stuff is, is real stuff. And so as Christians, we need to stay away from it. 
no, no matter how many of these mediums are on TV, they say, hey, we can call grandpa back or whatever. Don't listen to them. It is evil. We need to stay away from it. We shouldn't be playing around with games that supposedly conjure up spirits. We shouldn't be letting our kids play with magic cards. For the young parents in here with little kids, I will tell you in our school district here in Stillman Valley in third grade, they're going to be introduced to a series called Harry Potter. Some may go, what's the big deal? The big deal is, is those books were written by an actual witch, and the incantations in those books are real incantations from a witch's book. This is real. And so as parents, I mean, we should, we should watch out and be aware of these things. And I'll tell you how real this is. A number of years ago, back when I was over at Grace and Ashton, um, we were going through a, a series on looking at a bunch of different cults or whatever, and somebody knew somebody that was actually a witch, like a proclaimed witch that was part of a whole, like, whatever you want to call them, right? And she came and she spoke um, to our church members, and she said, look, this stuff is not fake. This stuff is real. And she, she gave a, a testimony of how they, we had, a, like, a seance going on, and they were in, like, this fire shot up in the air and this dragon comes out up in the sky above them. She's like, keep your kids away from it. Do not let them in it. This stuff will wrap you in itself and won't let you go. And like, it is real. And so as Christians, the point is we need to stay away from it. And this was who this Simon was that we're kind of dealing with right here. And when it comes to this Simon, he had like this whole city buffaloed into believing that he was like someone special. Verse 11, people listened to him and his message. Um, they, they clearly... All, they were clearly not of God, but he was clearly doing things that impressed them. But when Philip spoke the truth of God and did signs and wonders that were from God, it got people's attention. That's what we're going to look at in verses 12 and 13. It says, But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptized, and then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how much power the message of the gospel has in it. Like, I just don't, I don't think we realize the power just the simple message of Christ has. You know, Romans 1.16 tells us what, that, that I am not ashamed of the gospel for what? It is the power of God unto salvation. That as Philip spoke the message of Christ, God opened the eyes of these people who had been bamboozled by the sorcerer and got saved. I mean, they even went as far as to get baptized and identify themselves with Christ. Friends, we, we need to understand that the message of the gospel is powerful. I don't care how far gone we think somebody is, they're not too far gone for God to reach if he chooses to. We need to share the gospel with people, even people that we think are, are beyond it. If we don't think God can save people that we think are too far gone, wait till we get to Acts chapter 9 and Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I mean, he called himself the chief sinner, the chief of sinners, right? I mean, if he can do it in his life, he can do it in anybody's life. But now here's kind of where it gets interesting. Verse 13 says that even Simon the sorcerer believed and got baptized. But kind of the big mystery here is whether or not his conversion was real or whether he was just pretending for kind of nefarious reasons. We'll get into that in a minute, but first let's look at verses 14 through 17. And it says here in verse 14, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. And as soon as they arrived, they, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy 
Spirit. So the news of what happened in Samaria gets back to Jerusalem, and the apostles send Peter and John to go check it out. And when they got there, they, they see that this report is absolutely real. The Samaritans got saved. These pagan people who, who were known as idol worshipers, worshipers of false gods, they had given their lives to Christ. They had been baptized. And so Peter and John lay their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, What's really interesting about this particular passage of Scripture here is that it leads to a question that many, many commentators can't agree on as far as what exactly this means. But what, we, what we, most of them do agree on is this one thing. Most, most agree that what is going on here is that when you have the first century church just beginning, there was a transitional period between Pentecost and like, the end of Acts, or the middle of Acts even. And kind of the thought is this. So the first church there in Jerusalem was comprised, again, probably 99% of Jews. And to the Jew, in their mind, they were here, and the Gentiles were here. Samaritans, maybe it fell somewhere in the middle, but they, to them, thought they were religiously like superior to anyone else. And what this seems to be happening here is that, that God wanted the Christians, whether Jew, Samarian, or Gentile, to understand that there is no ladder of importance in the Christian church. You're all one body in Christ Jesus. And so by them receiving the Spirit in like manner as the apostles did. We're even to see this, I believe, in Acts chapter 10 when some of the Gentiles get saved. They come, they, they, they receive the Holy Spirit in like manner as the Jews did. What it is doing is it's putting them all in the same kind of playing field. So one didn't look at one as higher or lower. And we see the apostle Paul even speak to this in Galatians 3 and verse 28 where he said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And and most theologians believe that's for sure what's going on here. But there's also a debate on, like, did they really not have the Holy Spirit? And if they didn't really have the Holy Spirit at all, how in the world could they have been saved? It's kind of the question, okay? So what I would argue is this, is that the Holy Spirit was in them, but what happened when Peter and John came and laid hands on them was that the Holy Spirit manifested himself in a unique way to show, again, these new Sumerian believers were, were the same spirit as these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, if you think about this, just from a logical perspective, Philip, a man who came from the Jerusalem church, would he have baptized a bunch of people that were unsaved? I mean, clearly not. I mean, the Great Commission says saved, then baptized, right? The fact that there were reports that got these, that got, uh, these people getting saved that went back to Jerusalem, that Peter and John got sent, um, the fact that, that verse 8 is key, where verse 8 says that uh, the, the, the city was full of great joy. Can I tell you something? That's only possible through the Spirit. It's impossible for great joy to take place because that's part of the fruit of the Spirit according to Galatians chapter 5, which tells us that the Holy Spirit had to have been present in them. Not only that, when you take verses like Titus chapter 3 in verse 5, it says that God saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. You can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. We have all been baptized, we've all been made to drink of one Spirit. So salvation cannot happen apart from the Spirit. 
Because when the Spirit, that's what salvation, the Spirit comes in, washes us away. I mean, it's, we're cleansed, we're saved. And then Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 may be the most clear one. It says, but you are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Because if the Spirit of Christ does not dwell in you, you're not His. So what does this tell us? This tells us that more than likely the Spirit of God was present in them, but what this is more referring to is the Spirit of God manifesting himself in a, in a like manner as he did on the day of Pentecost, is the kind of idea I believe is what it's kind of referring to here. The idea that there's a, there's a difference between the Holy Spirit being present and the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in a special way in the life of a believer. We see this also in, even with the apostles, um, shortly after Christ was um, resurrected from the dead in John chapter 20 and verse 22, it says that Jesus breathed on the apostles and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't until Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 later on um, where he, and he told them that when the Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power. So it was something different. It was a specific power that was going to come upon them. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit manifested itself through tongues, through all these different things. It's kind of what we see. And so I, I don't know anybody that would say the disciples weren't saved until Pentecost. Does that make sense? And so to, to, to say that these Christians weren't saved, or were, were saved without the Spirit, it's impossible because it can't happen. And to say they weren't saved doesn't make any sense because Philip wouldn't have baptized them. And so again, what seems to be happening here is they were saved. The Spirit was probably present in them, but on a some unique way, he empowered these people. He manifested himself in these people um, to do some special thing. And I will tell you, even in the life as Christians, there's a big difference, even still today, between the Holy Spirit just being in us and the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in us. Like, have you ever done anything, and after you got done, you go, there's just no way I had the ability to say that, to do that. Where'd those words come from? How'd that happen? The Spirit manifests himself in special ways in the lives of Christians to do special things, to accomplish special tasks for his people. And I, I, can I tell you something? We should seek to walk in the power of the Spirit all the time. Not just walking in our own strength, knowing the Spirit dwells in us, but actively living in the power and the wisdom and the strength of the Spirit. We should seek that continually. We should continually seek His wisdom and His power. Now, let's get back to Simon here in verse 18 through 24. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on the people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord and perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. So pray, pray to the, and so pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you said won't happen. Now, I want to talk about for a moment what we, what we don't know exactly. What we don't know exactly is exactly what sign was given when these people received the Holy Spirit. More than likely, it was a similar sign as far as what happened in the day of Pentecost, because that's exactly what we see later on in Acts when the Gentile Christians got saved and the Holy Spirit came up and upon them. They started speaking in other tongues, right? And so if that was it, we don't know. But whatever it was, it says Simon, verse 18, and Simon saw 
that the Spirit was given. There was something that his eyes saw when these people, though the Spirit came upon these people, and whatever it was, he wanted it. But notice a couple things about these few verses. Notice one, that, that Peter and John laid their hands on people, but not on Simon. Simon was left out. He, he saw what happened when they laid their hands on them, but he did not receive whatever they had. Secondly, we see that he offered Peter and John money. He's like, whatever that is, I want it. And here, what's it going to take? It's kind of the idea, right? Now, here's what's interesting. It doesn't appear that he was simply asking for what those people had. He, he wasn't offering them money to say, hey, lay your hands on me so I can have what those people have. That's not what he's doing here. Look, look at verse 19. Let me have this power so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. He wasn't asking for what they had. He was asking for what Paul and Peter and John had. He's like, I want your power. He wasn't satisfied with just receiving the Spirit. He wanted the same power to, to touch people and the crazy signs and wonders happened. And we see Peter's response in verse 20. He says, may you, may you and your money be destroyed for thinking the Holy Spirit can be bought. I mean, it's, it's a strong statement. You, you, you take your money to the grave with you. We don't want it. Now, what was going on here? Now, remember, Simon was a very prominent man in society. He was a man who was known as the man who had the very power of God. And now that this man named Philip came and did these signs and wonders, people were now looking at Philip. And, and man, now that Peter and John came, they just laid their hands on these people, and then they started doing signs, these, whatever these things were. Like, man, I, don't, I want that. Because if, if they have that power, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to lose everything. I'm no longer going to be a prominent man in society. I'm no longer going to have the influence and the power that I once had. Because this was a man that was more than likely praying on the poor to make himself rich. Doing what he was doing. And again, you think about the strong statement in verse 20. Look at verse 21 through 23. He's like, look, you can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps you'll forgive your evil thoughts. You're full of bitter jealousy and, and held captive by sin. What we seem to have here, based on Peter's words, is somebody that was a false convert. It, it, it was somebody that, that made a profession of faith, even went as far as getting baptized, but the motives had nothing to do with repentance of sin or making Jesus Lord. It had everything to do with what he had to gain out of it in his own personal life. A couple commentators, one named James Boyce, he said this, it seems that verse 21 could be evidence that Simon was not a true convert with repentance and sincere faith. He goes on to say that his case is then a warning to anybody who thinks that just because he or she has made a profession of faith or has gone through certain motions expected of Christians that he or she is right with God for that reason and that is just not the case. And then another commentator named Morgan said this, Men may come very near. They may be intellectually convinced of the supremacy of Christ. They may even decide that they will adopt his ethical ideal. They may go as far as to determine that they will initiate the, perfect, the perfection of his example, but these things do not make men Christians. It's, it's the idea of this. 
knowing Christ and everything about him intellectually does not bring salvation. Saying a magic prayer doesn't bring salvation. Getting sprinkled as a baby doesn't make salvation. Getting dunked as an adult doesn't create salvation. Those are are, are works that, that anybody can do. There has to be a heart change. There has to be, in faith, somebody recognizes, I am a sinner, I need a Savior. If, I, if it left to me, I'm going to hell, and I can't do anything to fix it on my own. So what do I need? I need Christ, who went to a cross and died and rose again, who paid for my sin. Jesus, I need you to come into my life. I need you to be my Savior. I need you to forgive me my sins. I surrender myself to you. No longer am I king in my life. Jesus, you're my king, and I'm going to live for you. It, it's, it's an active choice of faith that we're surrendering ourselves to the authority of Christ, and that is clearly now what was happening here with Simon. He was just in it for himself. And we seem to be so, so careful about this. As far as verse 24, where Simon, he didn't pray himself. He didn't like fall down on his knees and beg for forgiveness. He told them, pray for me that these things won't happen. That's still not repentance. Feeling bad over sin is not repentance. Fearing the consequences of sin is not repentance. Peter says, you haven't repented, you're still in sin. What's repentance? Repentance is turning away from a former way of living. I'm no longer going to follow my sin, I'm following you, Christ. That's something that clearly Simon, at least at this point, hadn't done. Now, later in his life, did he? Maybe. Did conviction finally sent in and he get saved? We don't know. Um, according to some church tradition, it says that um, after this, he fell off the deep end and became a dangerous false teacher in the early church. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It's just according to church tradition. But, but the point is this. We and the people we love, we need to make sure that our faith is secure in Christ. That if, if, if we, when we get to heaven, when God asks us, why should I let you in? If it's anything other than I have placed my faith in your son as my Lord and Savior, friends, Matthew 7 will apply to your life. He will say, I never knew you. Away from me, you doer of evil. There's only one ticket to heaven, and it's through Christ. And we need to make sure that we share that message. People are going to get to heaven and say, I went to church. I never knew you away from me. I was sprinkled as a baby. I never knew you away from me. I said a prayer. Yeah, but you didn't mean it. I never knew you away from me. Listen, I'm not trying to challenge anybody's faith, but those verses are in Scripture for a reason. We need to make sure that our heart is right with the Lord, and especially the people we love, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. So many people in our country are be like, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And yet, you see no fruit of it. We need to make sure they understand the truth of it. So as we close here, just a few things. One, remember that God is sovereign and has a purpose for everything, even trials and persecution. Number two, when we face those times, let us not back down to the temptation of keeping silent. Instead, let's follow the example of these Christians that were driven out of Jerusalem and let's continue to declare with boldness the truth of the gospel.
Number three, we need to continually to seek um, the Spirit of God, continually to seek His power in our lives. Um, and, and I t- tell you this, if, if, if you ever just want prayer, if you want somebody to lay your hands on you, Doug and I would love to pray for you and put our hands on you and pray that the Spirit of God would move in your life. And I'll just say this, number four, just make sure your heart is right with the Lord. God deserves for us to live a life that brings Him glory. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this, um, this story in Scripture, God, that, that is so challenging. Lord, let us take it to heart. Um, let us not forget it when we leave, Lord, but let these, these words just, um, just ruminate in our brains tonight, tomorrow, and the week ahead. And, and Father, I just pray that, um, that each and every day we would wake up and seek your strength and your power, that each and every day we, we, would, we would come to, to your throne and say, Lord, um, give me the power today to live through your strength. Holy Spirit, lead me. Holy, Holy Spirit, give me wisdom. Holy Spirit, give me strength. Holy Spirit, give me discernment. And let us walk and live in the power of the Spirit of God. Lord, give us that strength every day because it's only when we do that, Father, that can we live for you. We do not have the ability in ourselves to bring you glory. The only way we do it is through your strength that's provided us through, through your Spirit. So God, give us that power and that strength. And Lord God, I just pray that um, for, for the people in our lives um, that, that we know that may or not be, may, or not, may not be saved, Lord, let us be people that share your gospel. Let us be people that share the truth of Scripture, even the hard truths that time, because people need to hear them. Lord, there is power in the message of Christ. Let us not be afraid to share it. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.